Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Rick Jackson, author of Chapel Hill, Murder and Mayhem. If you missed last week's show, make sure to check it out. And if you have a moment, be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other folks find Crime Capsule, and we sure do appreciate it. For now, let's jump back in. Rick, welcome back. We are so glad to have you with us. Hey, thank you. Glad to be back. Before we dive into these uh, other cases in your book, I just wanted to ask you, were you surprised by how dark the history was of the Chapel Hill area when you first really started getting into it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so I grew up in Durham, uh, North Carolina, and so, you know, so crime is not necessarily something that was foreign to me because, uh, I mean, there is it is a area with, with crime. And actually, my... Uh, even like murder was not necessarily foreign to me because uh, a friend of my parents, a lady named Nancy Williams, was murdered when I was a kid. So I was like, I was pretty close to someone being murdered. Um, but just to see, like, again, like like we said the last uh, last week, is like whenever you're at when you're in a place like Chapel Hill, those things just seem so far away, right? It seemed closer where I grew up because I was kind of a poor kid in the poor part of Durham. And uh, I don't know, I guess a place like that just seemed like those things could happen. But to look at a place like Chapel Hill just is so beautiful and uh, picturesque and to see that these things are not uh, geographically limiting, right? Like there's not just uh, places that things happen and places things don't happen that uh, it, it really kind of knocks down a sense of security, right? So I was very surprised um, I'm always surprised some, at the brutality that I find in some of these, you know, because uh, some of these, as we're about to talk about now, are like uh, planned out and thought of. And you're just you read it. And you're like, oh, my God, like this is like a, a horror movie that, that you've you've just watched kind of thing. You know, when I was an undergraduate uh, there in between the years of, well, it was just the early 2000s, that was when the Michael Peterson murder case happened. And a couple friends of mine who were studying pre-law actually went to the trial to observe in that instance. I'm referring, of course, to the one that was popularized by the Netflix show, you know, The Staircase. It, it, it always struck me, you know, we were there in real time as it happened and so forth. And it did strike me that, you know, that man's wives, wives, plural, had a nasty habit of falling downstairs, you know, <laughs> and sort of thinking, you know, this stuff does happen every day, or, you know, with some frequency, even in the modern South, that that level of, of brutality is just kind of right around the corner in some cases without our realizing it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the case, again, of Michael Peterson, you know, beauty, lived in a beautiful house, beautiful neighborhood, uh, you know, a very talented author. Um you know, I mean, I think they, there were some money problems, which, you know, for some people, like their money problems might look different than like my money problem. You know what I mean? Like they, the, the, <laughs> you know, it's probably just, I wish I had their money yeah, problems, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but, but for them maybe, but I, I don't know that that's ever been a pressure enough to, uh, to do the things that get done out there. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you, you look at the picture and you're like, well, Hey, this guy's got it all right. He's got it. All. He's got everything. And the next thing you know, you know, these guys' wives are taking a tumble down the stairs, you know, and it's mind boggling. It is. It is. Well, one thing that we are fascinated by here on Crime Capsule is the occasional female killer. 
and uh, we don't get many of them. We've had a few in the past, but when they come up, we always kind of incline our head in that direction and say, hey, what's going on, you know, with this? Um, tell us one of the earliest uh, chronological cases in your book, dates to the late 1870s, um, involves a very sordid is just such a polite word, uh, a, a totally debauched love triangle involving a guy named um, Bob Boswell and a lady named Becky Lyon. T- take us to the late 1870s here. Yeah, so 1879, Becky Lyon. And I start off in the book telling the story uh, from, I start off at the trial of Becky Lyon. She got tried for the murder of Nanny Blackwell and uh, her son Milton, and also she had an unborn child. And she is very solemn through the trial. And I'm, I'm going to go through and talk about like the testimony that was against her, but she's like so solemn and, and sad looking. And uh, the newspapers at the time say that as soon as they read the verdict that she was not guilty, she looked up and this big smile came across her face, right? Like you can just imagine like just this uh, level of, of evil. Uh, but the person that paid for these crimes, I'm about to describe the person that committed these crimes uh, is a guy named Bob Boswell. Bob Boswell was married to this, well, you know, common law married to uh, Nanny Blackwell, and he had a son, Milton, and uh, he had started a relationship with Becky Lyon. Becky Lyon uh, was a neighbor. I think they lived like a half mile down. You know, just small farms, small farms out in uh, Orange County, North Carolina. And uh, he had started an affair with her, and she was married to a guy named Ned. Well, Ned had, had been married before. Ned's wife had come up dead very suddenly to clear the way <laughs> for uh, for Becky to move yeah. in. Now, Boswell had testified later to the fact that as their relationship was going on, Becky had told him, hey, I would like for us to just be married, right? Like, I've got this guy, Ned. I don't want around anymore. You've got Nanny. You've got this kid. We need to just, you know, get rid of these people and be together. And she explains to him that that's what she did to Ned's wife. You know, I poisoned her and I got rid of her. And then, well, no, she she didn't poison. She got Ned to poison her. She taught Ned into poisoning her. So she kind of did to to Ned, I think, what she ends up doing to to uh, Boswell. But she talks Ned into doing it. Let me ask you this real quick. You write in you write in the book that uh, they live in these sort of cabins on the farmland, about half a mile apart. But what what I was curious about was how did they actually meet? I mean, was it did they meet because one moved to the farmstead and then they sort of the other was already living there, or had they known each other previously from some other, uh, you know, indentured servitude or sharecropping or what? what did we know how they met? I'm not sure how they met, but I would think, because if I'm just looking at the time period here, 1879, and these guys are probably the almost assuredly that, well, that for sure they were born into slavery, right? But they were children as slaves. And if they were a half a mile apart, they their family, I'm sure that there was a community there that had at some point... Uh, been been slaves in this area, right? Like they, I'm sure there was some history where all of these folks involved in the story, at least through their families, knew each other. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is because, uh, it, again, it's we're talking 1879, so these communities are not mixed. 
So this African-American community is going to be doing things. Like if you, if you have your family here, you're going to do stuff with the other African-American families around you, right? So you are only really socializing with a limited number of people. So, yeah, I don't know exactly the story behind that, but I would expect that almost assuredly they knew each other, you know, but maybe their whole lives. I mean, probably their entire lives or knew of each other, I would think. Okay. So they, they hatched this plan and I want to get you to just read a section uh, from your book. It starts at the bottom of, of page 26. And, you know, you read this and, and when you come across it in a retrospective historical account, you know, you're, it's the weirdest thing, Rick. You know, your your kind of stomach turns because of just like how much evil is about to happen. Um, but then you also get kind of curious about like, you know, what on earth must have they? What wh- what did it look like in a sort of granular way as they were discussing this? I, I I don't know, and I don't like to dwell on it, but it is it is interesting the way that this presages this moment that you describe presages everything that is about to follow this was the point of no return right and they and they chose not to return um but take take us take us right there would you yeah um again starting on page 26 boswell's brutal brutal crime spree had begun as a love triangle as many do boswell and his common law wife nanny blackwell lived in eastern orange county with their son in the fall of 1878 he caught the attention of a young becky lion becky was sharp shrewd and energetic uh, she also got what she wanted. She had previously set her sight on her sights on Ned Lyon, who was married, but his wife died suddenly. He and Becky were married soon after. Suspicion was cast on the death of Lyon's wife, but there was no proof of any wrongdoing by Ned, and he and Becky moved on from the tragedy as man and wife. Soon, however, Becky was restless, and she took up with Bob in an affair. In his confession, Bob claimed that Becky told him she had poisoned Ned's wife and was willing to poison Ned himself to get him out of the way if Bob would do the same so that they could be together. Yeah, so, you know, she she comes up with this plan. He is at first, and again, this is his, his confession, his testimony. He is at first not wanting to do this. He actually takes a job on a big farm in Raleigh just to kind of get himself out of this situation. Uh, but when he's coming back home, he's still finding himself drawn to Becky. Uh, she sounds like uh, she's someone that's, you know, uh, I think I use the term sirens call, right? Like she's just like, uh, she just has her hooks in this guy, right? And he he finally, he goes over and uh, ends up spending another night with her. And she talks him into carrying out this plan, right? Yeah, well, it reminded me, of course, of the case we discussed last week at the hot dog stand because, you know, you think it's going to go one way when you're about to commit this crime, but, you know, often it's not. It absolutely does not go the way that you think it will, and as Bob is, uh, you know, getting ready to take take the axe, you know, to his own wife and child, um, you know, just... Well, you 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 tell us because it's 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 really something. <laughs> so when he comes back from Raleigh, and he, and he takes back up with her, the reason he's able to go and actually he spends a couple nights with her uh, in her house is because she, and again this is his confession here, but she told him that she had put arsenic in the milk of Ned. And Ned had passed away suddenly, like right before he came home. Right, so Ned's Ned's dead they say, Ned's dead, 
and uh you know she's hanging out with bob again and she's putting her hooks in him so she hands him an axe and sends him out to take care of his part of the agreement right because again now our hooks are fully in him so he heads out to the night again a half mile from his cabin it's a pitch of night he goes out he comes up on the porch and he calls in the house for nanny nanny come out here uh, i want to talk to you about something she comes out on the porch sees her husband well again you know her partner with this axe uh yeah again just very horror movie as she screams he brings the axe down on her hits her a, a really good one time and injures her severely but she runs through the house screaming out of the back door he's right on her heels literally axe over his head chasing her through a field if it was not for her just getting tangled up in the pea plants that they have planted out there and falling um she, she might she may would have she made it, right? away. Yeah. She, yeah. she may have made yeah. it and that would have put him and you know he, he would have had to decide what he was going to do past that but i mean literally again in his testimony like he's standing over her she rolls over on her back severely wounded looks up at him eyes big you know with terror as he brings the axe down and finishes her off um, he drags her body back up to the house puts her in the bed uh, and then he's wondering, he's like, well, man, what am I going to do about the kid? What am I going to do about Milton in there, right? Did he hear anything? He goes and checks on him, and he's asleep. Well, again, you're thinking, you know, as you say, like going one way over the other, you're like, well, maybe, you know, he, he walks away. And he does walk away after he closes the door and takes a torch and throws in the house and lets the house burn down, Right. So, uh, I mean, literally just walks off pretty much into the, the moonlight as this house is burning behind him. Just a gruesome scene. Luckily, well, I mean, it didn't matter in the end, but I'll say this. Luckily for the evidence that people were able to find, people caught the fire soon. And they got there and they put the house out in enough time to be able to see the shape of the bodies. They could see that Milton had died from smoke inhalation. They could see that she had been brutally murdered with an axe, and they also were able to do an autopsy on her and find out that she had an unborn child uh, at that time. So it was just very, very brutal uh, what had happened here. And, and they, they were on to Bob, like, really soon, right? Like, they, they pretty much went and picked him right up. And, uh, of course, they tried him, and they found him guilty, and he confessed. Uh, but what really got Becky off at her trial and kept her from getting executed is because people were looking at Bob and listening to his confession. You have to question someone's uh, honesty that can do stuff like that. You know what I mean? In a way, you're like, well, he's being honest. But then in a way, you're like, well, if somebody will do that, they'll obviously lie, right? And this Becky, I think, was very good at playing a victim uh, and manipulating people. And also, you got to think at the time here, the appetite for almost if you go to like the, the Lizzie Borden case up north, right? Like if you go north to Lizzie Borden, uh, the appetite for executing a woman at this time was not really there, right? So I think I wonder if the jury was almost looking for a reason to let her walk away from this. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering all throughout, there's that aspect, that sort of, uh, you know, cultural context of the time. But I was also trying to figure out, you know, I mean, <laughs> did Bob Boswell, he was he killed his own family, in, you know, in cold blood, uh, all for the, 
I can't call it love. I can't call it lust. I don't know what I can call it because I wasn't there, but all under the influence of this woman who had admitted to him, you know, who had conspired with him. She'd already poisoned one guy, probably, uh, you know, one more individual as well after that. And it's just, you just sort of think like, Bob, don't you think you're in the line of fire here too? I mean, like, say you go through with this and you take up with her. Who's to say that you're not going to get that arsenic, you know, pudding in the morning for breakfast one day, right? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And it's, uh, you would think just using critical thought that you would say, well, hey, you know, if uh, if she's going to you know, get rid of if I if I believe if she is to be believed because I didn't see it. But she's telling me that uh, she killed his wife or she had him kill his wife. She's telling me that, uh, you know, she killed him and <laughs> poisons milk. You know, what's what's she going to do when I don't get the trash taken out on time or something Oof, you know? like this man, is not not going to be good. I tell you, let me ask you this. I mean, it will take us just to the, you, you write, there's this kind of interesting moment where his confession is the only thing that prolongs his life. I mean, he's toast, right? I mean, he's done for. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, they are, they're geared up because, uh, you know, the previous story in the book talks about the Chapel Hill burglaries. Uh, the, I mean, he, they literally had the gallows already up from hanging three guys pretty much the summer before. So they are, and this crime is so horrible and, and terrible that they are, they are amped up to, to take care of this guy. But like the fact that he needed to give that testimony against her, this is the only thing that really prolonged his life on this earth. And when he was executed, I mean, he was executed in a pretty brutal manner. He was, he was hung, but hanging is not like we see, I mean, apparently, obviously I've never you know, been there when this has taken place, but you know, a lot of times when we see like the old cowboy movies, you know, they hang them and it's all over in just a couple of seconds. We took 30 minutes for this guy to strangle you know, it took them 30 minutes for them to, uh, his, his neck did break at the initial drop, but not enough to kill him. And so like this guy just like dangled and strangled there, uh, for 30 minutes while they all waited for him. So he, he put it off as long as he could, but, uh, eventually in the end, uh, Bob definitely paid, paid the price. I never could find anything else about Becky. And that's one of those things where I really wish you know, in more modern times, I feel like there'd probably be a lot more curiosity. But, you know, when we're going back to 1879, you're very limited resources. And I, I'd like to know that same thing. Like, I wonder if she, I would think she'd have a really hard time just walking back into this community, which has had to be very small and tight knit. You know what I mean? So uh, there's just really no telling where Becky ended up. And I would really give give uh, quite a good amount to find out what happened to her uh, after that. But I've never found any record of her after this trial. I mean, so often in situations like this, somebody changes their name, you know, and kind of, but you never know. Look, the last question I have for you about this case, Rick, is um, uh, is a real, this one's from the heart. Um, after completing this chapter, did you have to just go down and like lie down in a room full of puppies <laughs> yeah. just to kind of get, get yourself back on on track again? Yeah, it's, you know? it, it, I, I got to say, it's uh, one thing I have found with doing uh, the writing I've done with the uh, true crime stuff. There have been uh, 
there's definitely been times because I'm a, you know, I'm a dad. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a father. And especially when it's dealing with children, it gets really tough sometimes. It, it, it can be emotionally draining. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was looking up, uh, and this is for my previous book, uh, North Carolina Murder and Mayhem. I did the, uh, I covered the case of uh, Jeffrey McDonald, the uh, Green Beret who uh, killed his wife and the daughters. And, uh, you know, just in my, in my, case study i'm looking at crime scene photos and things and i, I mean I, I there there literally was a time when i shut my laptop and just sat at my desk and cried for a minute because this these are these are little kids you know somebody's wife somebody's kids and to just know that people can do that it's uh it, yeah it, it can be very emotionally draining absolutely like i said especially being a dad it, it can be really rough puppies yeah, you know, for All sure. You, yeah, you got to walk away from You got to set it down sometime. Be like, okay, like that's enough. Uh, that, that's like enough darkness for right now, you know. Well, and Crime Capsule listeners know that I'm I'm Team Cat. I've mentioned my oh, yeah. dear beloved tor- tortoiseshell Snickers on the show once or twice, and um, so I'm I would say room full of kittens, but whatever you need, ducklings, you know, just like whatever you need, just you know, bring that light back, bring that light back. Let's let's turn to uh, let's go from the macabre to the slightly surreal uh, for the second case uh, back here in the town of. Uh, Durham Chapel Hill, the, the Triangle sort of region. Um, it is in proximity to the university, but it doesn't really have a whole lot to do, you know, with the university. And this is an unusual case that um, took place, uh, or at least kind of came on to local awareness at the Washington Duke Hotel in the mid 1940s. Now, I have to say, as a young whippersnapper, uh, an undergrad, uh, you know, involved in sort of uh, campus arts activities. We used to have speakers on, you know, on campus stay at the Washington Duke Hotel on a regular basis. I mean, all the time, all the time, right? And I used to have to go drive. Them. I would go and pick them up from from you know, the Wash Duke, and uh, you know, drop them off, and I'd I'd be their courier, and you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, I got to know that that whole you know, area pretty well, because I was just going back and forth so frequently. Occasionally, you'd have a drink at the hotel bar, you know, that kind of thing. But but it was so strange to me, Rick, personally, that uh, reading this account of a case in in which, uh, you know, knowing the portico and the drive up and all this kind of, all that stuff, sort of, you know, the setting is important to this particular case. And all I could do, you know, as I was remembering it and kind of running back through it mentally, was think, we have to file this one under, uh, sometimes you have to go look for the evidence, and sometimes the evidence comes and finds yeah, oh, you, yeah. right? This, uh, what a case, what a case. Yeah, this one, uh, like you said, it's so... It, it's so odd, and like you were saying, it's uh, if you were law enforcement in this, you once you get that first uh, the first call, like the things just start like basically landing in your lap, and it just gets odder and odder. But uh, like you said, mid forties. I mean, so we're wartime, right? We're like wartime footing. You know, everybody's just uh, full effort. Probably just looked like a whole different world. But Washington Duke uh, Hotel beautiful hotel in Durham, North Carolina. And one of the parking attendants, they have a black car out there that is just having this rancid, horrible smell begins to emanate from it, right? I mean, they can't even get near there. It's not a good start to anything. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that just nothing good comes out of a car that smells the high heaven, you know what Yeah, I mean? <laughs> so it's, and they, they look in the windows and they're seeing like, you know, uh, 
you know, I mean, they're literally like holding handkerchiefs to their nose and they see like blood stains on the upholstery and they're like, hey, we need to call the police. So they call Durham Police Department. They come up and they see that the car is registered to uh, Miss Addie Jewett and they go up to her room and they find uh, she's she's 67. She's out of Missouri. So this this case like kind of strands the whole half of the United States. Uh, but she's registered up in 1201. Uh, they call some backup. They go up there and they find her grandson in the room. Uh, his name is Mr. Martin. Old Edward, just having a time up there. I mean, and he's he has a story for yeah, them. Yeah, he, he's up there. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. He's up there. He's got a buddy of his. He's got two soldiers that were not where they were supposed to be, you know, and they're up there just partying. And they bring them down. They're like, hey, man, you know, we need you to come down here and open the trunk of your car. And when they do, they come down there. He opens it up, and just the smell of rotting flesh just hits them all like a ton of bricks. I mean, they all have to step back. They look in the trunk, and there's a hatchet. Uh, it's wrapped in a brown paper bag. There's literally maggots crawling over it. Uh, you know, they, they find that... Uh, I mean, Martin Light just steps back from sight. He can't even look at this stuff. Uh, he say he tells them one of many stories. He tells them that he hit a buzzard on the way from Missouri and didn't know what to do with it and threw it in the trunk. And then he tells them that he bought some chicken and left in the trunk. He bought some raw chickens on the way left in the trunk. Uh, of course, they they didn't buy that at all. Right? They took him uh, downtown. They start questioning him. Once they get back to his room, they go back up to the room because now, you know, it's a crime scene. Uh, well, yeah, the car's a crime scene. So they go and do their investigating. And like you talked about how, like, the, the evidence just starts coming at them full force. They find a, a bloodstained uh, shirt, a pair of pants. Uh, they found a will that had recently been signed by his grandmother leaving him a half million dollars. Well, when they looked into it, they, she didn't have a half million dollars, right? Like she had like, I think she had like $8,000 at most, right? I might, I might even be overstating that. I don't have that in front of me. But, uh, you know, they go back down. The, once they get the smell out, they start searching the car. Uh, they find like a lady's watch, broken glasses, false teeth that had been broken up. Uh, and all these things literally are, are covered with blood and like particles of flesh, just like dried and stuck to these things. Well, they also find a keychain with the address for 221 North Bridge Street in Chapel Hill. So, of course, now they go to the next location, right? Get to the next location. <laughs> yeah, they call the Chapel Hill PD. Now they're working together. They put the uh, key in the door. <laughs> they open the door, get hit by the same smell rotting flesh oh, right man. and they're just like here, here again they're same place inside they find a coat a lady's coat shoes dress they find a pillow with the words hotel frederick on it which is going to be important a little bit later too and uh while they're searching uh the place somebody walks by and they you know of course the house is open now smelling like this stuff and someone's like hey there is a boat down by this lake eastwood eastwood lake that smells just like this house, like this rotting flesh. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, so, like, so now they go to the boat, and they're looking at the boat, and they're like, okay, now we probably need to, like, drag the river or drag the lake and see, like, what's going on. And sure enough, they find out this poor old lady who has just been brutally murdered. Uh, Edward Martin gets arrested, and he comes out. So this guy, is he, he's a smart kid. He comes out with a 
he's smart. I'll, I'll say he he's probably an intelligent kid. I don't know if smart's the right word, but he's not he's not an uneducated. Kid. I mean, this guy like they're saying he hit a buzzer on the side of the road and throws. I mean, that's just it's 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 an excuse. It's not a very good excuse. You know what I mean? Like, it, I mean, that, yeah. it doesn't make any it's sense. It's something to say. Yeah, it's something to say. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, <laughs> not going to carry you very far. But <laughs> the guy does try to mount a defense. Uh, of sorts, and he confessed. So he he comes out with a strategy, and uh, I mean, like I say, he definitely has a strategy. Like he's not just a guy that's going to just go down without trying to figure something out. But he writes this big long confession, and he basically says that this was all just an accident. He 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 says, and this is confirmed, and I, I'll uh, I'll mention this a little bit after I talk about his confession. But he tells about how he has been his grandmother's constant compa- companion his whole life. Right? He says when they were driving from Missouri into uh, North Carolina, he had bought a bottle of rum. She didn't like that. She didn't approve of that. She tried to take it from him in the car. He fought her for it. As she was losing the grip on it, she fell back, hit her head on the door, and the door came open. And she felt grandma fell out of the car. Well, he felt bad that she fell out of the car. So he immediately stopped, threw the car in reverse to go get her, but ran over her by accident. And so he put her in the car to try to take her somewhere. But by that time, it was too late, right? So, like, he, he literally, like, this story he's telling is just like, it's, it's, it's even a horrible excuse. <laughs> of why this all happened, right? And then he said, you know, he got scared and did all this, like he dumped her and stuff. So crazy uh, confession, but of course his confession is not even a true. Like there's no way that's true. You know, he's just trying to get out of it. But that being said, his family, he, he ended up being transferred back to Missouri for the trial, but his family did come and testify uh, and said that his grandmother, Addie Jewett, was very, very, she was a very controlling and overbearing woman. And actually, Edward's mom was her daughter. And she was so involved in her marriage that she she and her daughter ended up getting divorced because her mom would just not stay out of her marriage. And, and her mom ended up kind of taking Edward from Edward's mom and like, hey, I'm just going to raise this boy. You know, and like his mom is just gone, right? Like she's just kind of to the wind. And he's now, uh, you know, and his family, his uncle went and testified and said like, hey, like he, you know, he's doing like school, two or three hours of piano lessons at, at night. You know, he, he's having to go like literally stay at his grandmother's side. If she goes and sits on the porch, he goes and sits on the porch. If she goes here to, you know, a ladies meeting at, at a church, like he goes and sits there at the ladies meeting. Like he was not allowed to play and have friends. He was just with her constantly, right? So you can see again probably this resentment building uh, within him uh, against his grandmother. And uh, so you know when he was old enough, he tried to break ties. Or he tried to go to college. He tried. He went to Duke University. Uh, in Durham, but she moved out there too. You know, like she, she just followed it. Even when he tried to move away from her, he, he fought, she followed him and just would not let him have any kind of freedom or separation. Um, but you know, in the end, I mean, they, the prosecution obviously was able to convince the jury that this was no excuse for, you know, brutally murdering. His yeah. It doesn't justify yeah. murder. Yeah. Right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, he thought, he really thought Edward really thought that they, that she had a lot of money. Right. So he really thought he was going to get his freedom, a lot of money, even if he had got away with it. Like I say, she really didn't have that much money anyways. 
Uh, but he was found guilty. And one thing that I'll say, like to just tell the kind of what the guy is, uh, what kind of guy he was uh, on the day of the verdict, a reporter asked him, he said, would you rather go to a mental hospital or prison? And he said, uh, at the hospital, I'd be chained up with the same murders. And if I go to prison, I have to work. I don't want to work and I won't work. <laughs> it was his, his answer. So this guy's basically like, hey, I'd rather go to the insane asylum. Uh, but he, he got, yeah, he got sentenced to a 20 years in prison for second degree murder because they really couldn't prove that it wasn't, you know, something that just an argument took place between them. Uh, but the crazy thing about him is he actually became a model prisoner, but then he escaped in 1950. He escaped prison out in Missouri. Model prisoner until yeah, he until escaped. He escaped. <laughs> he escaped. He's out for quite a while, but then gets in a gunfight after a uh, after some guys he was drinking with got in an argument with him, and that's how they recalled him because he got in a, he got in a gunfight, like he got wounded in a gunfight, and they get him and take him back in jail. He does the rest of his sentence, but that was kind of crazy. Did you ever find out what happened to him? Because I'm assuming that he would have been released sometime. If this all this happened in the mid-40s and it was a 20-year sentence and, you know, he kind of got out in the mid to late 60s, maybe, something like that. Did you ever pick up his thread? No, I mean, everything else from, I mean, I, generally if I don't find anything on anybody, after that it tells me that they kind of fell back into society and just kind of did right, right? So I never found anything on him uh, beyond that beyond that jailbreak. So whenever he did serve his time, he was able to, you know, keep himself out of the newspapers. Uh, and, and that's one thing I will say, I found that was very disturbing. Uh, there are a lot of people that have committed murder that are like, kind of like walking around, you know, they, these, they, they are, they are out there, you know, there are people that, because, you know, I have later cases in this. Obviously, it's a long time ago, but I've got cases in my book from the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, I look at the prison records and I see when they got released. And I'm like, well, hey, man, this guy's just, uh, he's just out there working at, at Wendy's or something. You know, like there's no telling where this person's at right now. Let's take a quick look at just one more case. Um, it's interesting because it, it really is kind of about the intersection of town and gown, but it it's also speaks to the political context of uh, this area for so, so long. I mean, of course, uh, our listeners, you know, we all know that North Carolina is a political battleground state, and it's very evenly divided, and, um, you know, there are sort of hotbeds and pockets of different kinds of pol political activity all over uh, North Carolina. But so the triangle, uh, which of course state capital in Raleigh um, is very intense when it comes to debates. And even uh, when I was there years ago, you know, we used to call Carborough the People's Republic of Carborough because it always had this sort of very strong um, leftist uh, organizing presence and which did a lot of good in the area for a lot of different uh, people. You know, it's always been the whole area, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Durham, has always had a kind of heightened political sensibility, right? And the one of the very last cases in your book, 
really touches on that. It's really interesting to see how that kind of comes in. It's not just a love affair gone wrong. It's not just a rum runner who does, you know, who misses the shot. You know, it's it's actually about a very different strand of uh, of activity here. So tell us a little bit about uh, Bob Sheldon. Yeah, and, and you're you're so right what you're saying about uh, Chapel Hill and Carborough. I mean, I got a book as a reference. Uh, in, in my research, I got a book. This book was published in like 1961 or something. So when we were talking about like you know, way back in the day, 1961, even before like the the free love and hippie and like the stuff that people would consider to be like the radical stuff, you know, at the university campuses. But this book, literally, I opened it up and the first sentence it says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I have it in front of me, but literally the first sentence is something like, Chapel Hill has always been known as a hotbed of uh, homosexual and radical communist thought. And that's 1961, right? So like this is... Uh, 1961. Yeah, so yeah. this chapel, this chapel of Carver has always been known, like you said, as like a, an outlier in this uh, very much battleground kind of state. Uh, but yeah, that's like a reference from like way, way back then, right? But uh, Bob Sheldon, when he came to Chapel Hill, he came to Chapel Hill in the 70s, I mean, he was known as Commie Bob. I mean, he was very much uh, uh, what you would say like a, a anti-government kind of agitator, right? Like he was uh, what I think a lot of people would consider a radical. And he came into town. He first had come into North Carolina from uh, Colorado, I think is where he was born. But he had come into Col- in from Colorado to uh, work with uh, labor unions, right? So in the 70s, the late 70s, uh, North Carolina's big textile, you know, big textile state. And people would come in uh, and work in these textile mills and, uh, you know, try to get them to unionize. You've probably seen the movie Norma Ray, right? Like that is, I mean, that's exactly like what happened, right? And uh, so he was one of those guys. He came in and he found a home there in a Carborough area around Chapel Hill. And he opened a book called The Internationalist Bookstore. Well, when he first opened that book, uh, that bookstore, it was more just a place where people could kind of come and and get, uh, you know, the the you know, the kind of the far left uh, ideology, just somewhere where you could feel at home in that and like get your uh, books and your, your Marxist stuff and, you know, just kind of be a radical with other radical, right? Yeah, they would have called it counterculture at one point in time, but really it was progressivism, right? And and with North Carolina's yeah, yeah, yeah. long history of progressivism, of course you're going to find, uh, you know, places that are really going to kind of support that. And, and it's, I think it's a fascinating history. I think it's one that has not been fully told, frankly. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the democratic leadership of Terry Sanford in the eighties, you know, which really brought progressivism into the mainstream in a way, in a, in a Southern state that had not experienced that in, in, uh, you know, a long time, if ever. So there, there is something to be said there for, you know, folks like Bob who were part and parcel of that movement helping to shape political discourse. It's fascinating stuff. I hope someone can tell that story one day. Yeah, absolutely. And he, I mean, he gained a following in the international bookstore. I mean, it had a couple iterations. It got bigger and bigger, you know, like it was a place where people would come and have these ideals. And of course, you know, you have the university there. So you have, you know, young people coming through, which also had people just flocking here for these ideals, right? Like these, uh, the, these, uh, counterculture things, like you said, at this time, uh, these these ideals, and uh, you know, just there's that, that rebellion aspect too of just you know, uh, we're we're gonna teach this stuff that uh, maybe you're not getting in the mainstream. But he, he did very well there, but and, and he was really a part of the community. Everybody knew him, 
And fast forward, this is happening all through the 80s. You know, again, he's just kind of in the community being there. But in uh, 1991, we have a thing called the Gulf War. And the feeling in the nation was, uh, of course, that after Vietnam, the Vietnam War, you know, had really been a black eye for us as a nation. And on top of that, we were getting a little bit of separation between uh, the war and the current time. And people were looking back and seeing how the soldiers that had come back from the war had been treated also. So now you've got people that were like, okay, I, even if I didn't agree with the war, you know, maybe I shouldn't have treated the troops like I did. So you had kind of a hyper-patriotism around that first Gulf War, right? You definitely, though, had, and I think looking back in history, people don't realize that we did have a pushback on it too, right? Like you had people that were getting out in front of it saying like, hey, we shouldn't be getting involved in this. We're not doing the right thing. But for the most part, the country was like in a just a real sense of like hyper patriotism. I think George H.W. Bush's approval ratings got up to like 90 percent or something crazy like that. They were that. in the 90s. They were. Yeah. And it they was uh, it was just almost unheard of. So, I mean, people were for the most part, I think I, I almost think and I was younger when this happened, but I almost feel like we wanted to have like a redo as a country we kind of wanted a redo of this whole vietnam experience well bob sheldon was not having it right like he was saying the same things you, you have to give him credit for consistency right like he's said the same things about vietnam he comes out like hey we're not doing right i don't agree with this war but i mean he got off uh probably about a month before his death he was on the news and he was you know, saying how he had fought against the Vietnam War. He, you know, dodged a draft, I think he had said. And he was, you know, saying, like, we're seeing the same things happen. This is bad. It's bad. And, uh, you know, he was just, he was out in the community. He was not having the, the flag waving stuff. And on the night, on uh, one night in February, I think February 21st, he was supposed to meet up with a friend of his named Ken. Uh, never showed up, and uh, Ken went to the bookstore and found Bob lying there in a pool of blood on the floor. Uh, call 911, of course, they rushed to the hospital. He held on for a day, but Bob was not in a place where he could describe anything that happened, right? Like he was just, you know, he, he was basically, uh, he was going, right? He was moving towards death and was never able to communicate anything. Um, he had a small cash box. So they call it a robbery, right? They're like, hey, the international bookstore got robbed. Uh, Bob Sheldon got killed. That was the police narrative. But all of the people that knew Bob were like, hey, this guy, if he had any money in the cash box, like he was not about money, right? Like the money was not the reason for the international bookstore. He, they're like, if he did have money, if someone had have robbed him, he would have gladly just handed it to them and be like, well, here, take it. You know, that's just, that's who he was. So really the feeling was and has been that this guy really, really, really made somebody angry with his very outspoken uh, view on the war, on the Persian Gulf War. And, uh, you know, this is another one that's very recent, but it's never, it's never been solved. There's really never been a good lead on anybody that did this crime. Given the intensity of the political you know, emotion at the time. Um, I wondered whether they could have tied ballistics to like a, like a military grade bullet, like a higher caliber, higher caliber bullet. And maybe it would have been like an angry, angry veteran, very, very pro, you know, um, 
pro-invasion at that time in 91. I just, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's case files, but I just couldn't help but wonder if there was any way to, you know, increase some likelihoods there, but you never know. I don't know. Yeah. And that's another one of things because it's still, I mean, technically anytime there's an unsolved case, it's technically still open, right? So it's a little more difficult to get your hands on stuff, but you know, it could be the same exact thing. The police could know exactly what, what happened and we're not going to know unless something breaks and they're able to prove it. Uh, and this happened in the case uh, later on of uh, Faith Hedgepath that we, uh, yeah, you, you may have heard of in Chapel Hill. People want to look that up. But, uh, you know, out of no, that was an unsolved case for several years. And out of nowhere, you know, the police bring forth a suspect that no one had even known this guy's name, right? Like he wasn't even on any of the, anybody's list of people they thought had done this. But so hopefully something like that will happen. But in my opinion, I, I feel like Bob definitely, paid the price for having his views, right? And it's it's very sad because uh, we live in a very binary time where, uh, you, you know, we can't, it's almost like we can't respect someone that disagrees with us. And uh, maybe this was a precursor for things to come back in 91, uh, but it used to be that, you know, we, we had a little more tolerance for someone that was standing up and saying something that maybe we didn't agree with them on, but, you know, we weren't going to wish them harm. But I feel like Bob definitely got caught up in the fact that he just angered the wrong person in his non-support of, of this war. Well, and there's another twist here, too, um, as far as the overall history of Chapel Hill you know, goes, which is that, as you write in your book, that particular building, uh, which housed the internationalist bookstore, subsequently its next life was as one of Chapel Hill's most beloved restaurants in its entire history, a place where I've dined many times called Mama Dips. You know, we used to take those same visiting speakers who would come to the university area, you know, who I would drive in and out of the Washington Duke Hotel. We'd take them over to Mama Dips for dinner, you know? <laughs> and it's just kind of funny how it all, it's all connected in that, in that area. And yet no one ever told us that a murder had taken place in that building. You know, that was, I don't recall any signage, you know, I don't recall any kind of marker that was just, you know, go and get you that good old, you know, soul food, which we did, uh, and it was delicious. But, you know, there was no indication of what had happened there 30 years previous. Yeah. And, that, you know, again, and that's why, I like, you know, when I go back to when I was talking about my brother and I writing the first book, Ghost of the Triangle, it's, there's so much history out there. And these little stories all go into, you know, maybe, maybe in the history book of, of North Carolina history or Chapel Hill history, uh, that doesn't make the cut. But, you know, Bob Sheldon lived and he died there, right? And Mama Dip's restaurant was iconic, right? And those things converged there in that spot. And, and if someone doesn't tell those stories, these things would just get lost to history, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's kind of like why I, I enjoy doing what I do, because I learned stuff like that. Like, I didn't know that myself. My wife went up there. We've eaten at Mama Dip's. I never knew that. You know, I, ne I, I never knew that at all until I started uh, – doing this research for the book. And, uh, it was, uh, it, it was eye opening to say the least that, that these things just happen around us. You know, there's just so much in this world that we just kind of walk past, you know, without seeing. Yeah. Well, let us hope, uh, as we, as we wind to a close here that there does, that we do still live in a day and age in which folks can get together over a uh, a bowl of Mama Dips cheese grits or a, or a plate of Bullock's barbecue, you know, and, and have a civil discussion, you know, with one another and agree to disagree and let it come to no, 
no more than that. I like, I like to live in that hope, and I imagine you do too. Uh, Rick, let me ask you just before we go, what is next for you? What is Now that this book is out, congratulations again. What's next on your, uh, on your plate? Well, uh, what I've been working on, because I'm from, uh, again, I'm from Durham, right? So I would like to do, I'd like to do this uh, like an in-depth dive with the murder and mayhem in Durham. And then I've lived in Raleigh also uh, most of my life, I, like my adult life. After I left uh, Durham, I moved to Raleigh. So I'd really like to kind of uh, do a uh, trifecta, if you will. But I'm, I'm about halfway through a Durham, <laughs> a Durham M&M right now, uh, which that's really, you know, you uh, that's just really close to home because I'm, I'm you know, researching things now that I remember people talking about when I was a kid or I remember, you know, I'm researching things that I remember uh, – you know, that happened that that are almost like part of the lore of certain areas, you know, so I'm really hoping to shed some light on those things. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of my next project. I'd li- really like to do one for Durham. Well, tell folks, you know, right up front to steer clear of any suspicious looking staircases, yeah. especially <laughs> the ladies, right? Whatever you do, take the dang elevator. Yeah. And especially if there's an owl around. Apparently there was an owl involved. I don't know about that, but it's, you Ugh, watch that. Good heavens. If you see any, you know, Vietnam era novelists walking your way, just run. Yeah, run <laughs> with all you've got. Well, he's still walking around somewhere out there, you know. So, well, they have my books at uh, Amazon and most Barnes and Nobles. You can find them. Uh, I have a website, rickjacksonauthor.com. Uh, feel free to get on there. I need to update my blog pretty soon, put some more stuff out there. But I hit a blog every once in a while on there, just things that are on my mind, things I'm working on. Uh, but you can find me there sounds great well we thank you so much for joining us and sharing these stories and rest assured next time i come up to the triangle we're going to go to bullocks yeah we're going to sit down and and have it out so yeah give me a call forward to it absolutely will do will do thank you so much rick it's been a pleasure thanks ben appreciate it thanks as always for listening our guest has been rick jackson author of Chapel Hill Murder and Mayhem, a brand new title published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us again soon for more cases ripped from the headlines from Arcadia Publishing. Thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.